Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. When you hear the phrase counting on God, on what are you counting? Or what are you counting? Counting on God. So I've been musing over this now for several days um, because Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma, has asked that the COVID-19 virus be declared an act of God. And it got me thinking, why do we count only bad things as acts of God in terms of, like, why have we allowed insurance in, in particular, but the law more broadly in America, to accuse God when something bad happens, catastrophically bad, right? We consider it an act of God. Um, sometimes acts of God are covered in your insurance policy. Other times they are not. So the insurance company does not have to pay you for an act of God. But have you noticed that they're they're always and only universally bad? Nowhere is anybody counting for or accounting for all of the good things that God is doing every single day. And so um, I I would like for us to make an accounting. I would like for us to account for the acts of God today that are good and gracious and beneficial and beyond uh beyond the insurance company's accounting. Because there are acts of God that are worth noting, like, you know, not least of rich, that Jesus was raised from the dead and uh, and God counted our sins against him. Uh, and the accounting that is now taking place in heaven uh, is completely different because our sins are no longer um, counted against us because of Christ if we put our faith in him. So when we think about the, the book of Acts, the Acts of, uh, of the Holy Spirit through the apostles um, in the early church, where is that kind of accounting today taking place? We count on God for a lot of things, but do we ever count? Like, you know, I mean, I, I realize like at Thanksgiving, we count our blessings. We name them one by one. Why do we wait for Thanksgiving? How about today? How about today? I declare today a day of Thanksgiving unto the Lord. Let us, uh, let us remember to the Lord his deeds and his acts. And then when we hear people refer to, like, COVID-19 or other catastrophically bad things as, you know, acts of God, um, let's be sure we also remind them of all of the extraordinarily wonderful things God is doing each and every day without our even asking, the sustaining of, uh, of our lives uh, right at the top of the list. All right. Uh, next up, I got Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to talk uh, not about life, but we're going to talk about death. Um, because right now, one of the things that is literally being counted very, very publicly is every single death. Every death is now accounted for um, in very public ways. And we're going to talk about how that is sort of changing the, changing the way Americans are thinking about death itself. We'll be right back.
All right, joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner. He and I like to call this the 50 Shades of Truth segment of the week. Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Always great to be with you here this morning. Wonderful to have you. Have you tweeted? You know, Carmen, uh, based on your, your both your admonitions and your encouragement over the past uh, six months or so, I think I tripled my Twitter output last week with three <laughs> tweets. Okay, we're going I mean, now to read. I, I didn't want to go hog wild, Carmen, but but That's it was good. a pretty crazy week. Yeah. All right. So let's see. You tw- you tweeted on April the twenty third, recommending an NT Wright podcast. You tweeted fabulous. on April the twenty sixth that you went to play golf, uh, and yeah. some and yeah. yeah. So that's good. Uh, a, a conversation about uh, God breathing life into humankind, Genesis two. You're you're a fun yeah. golf buddy. That's that's a fun conversation. <laughs> uh, and then uh, also on the twenty eighth, you tweeted that you're joining buddy uh, Justin Jepson for. Uh, UNWSP, University of Northwestern St. Paul Chapel podcast. So, Indeed. okay, so this is just a thought, man. But like before you come on the air on the show, yeah. you you could tweet and your massive followership of 27 people um, <laughs> would would be notified. And that would add to the tens of thousands of people listening right now. And that would be fun. <laughs> You, you know, I, I get it. It's a drop in the bucket, Carmen, but it's my drop <laughs> no, in the bucket. And, no, and I, no. I will pour that drop willingly onto your show every no. Thursday morning. I can't wait. Okay, we want Drew and Luke and uh, and Anna and Jesse and Susan and Patrick and Carolyn and Brenda and Ronnie and Jeff and Ben and David and Christy, on and on. We want them all. We do. Absolutely. Ted Ross, Absolutely. Ted Ross follows you, and he may already be listening. So it's, Paul Perot is definitely it, listening. He's one of your followers. Situation. I have yeah, no this, choice in the matter. Been... <laughs> I know. All right. So um, I teed this up by saying that you and I uh, were going to talk about death. So literally right now, um, every I mean, you can't you can't scan the news headlines without getting you know an update either from your own state or from the nation or the world um, or a specific reference to an individual um, and their life. Like death is that is the headline news of the day. It's no longer if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, like the death count, it's just literally like they're just ringing that bell over and over and over again. What do you feel like that's doing to our psyche? Um, and um, how does that sort of open up the opportunity for conversations about death that, you know, a few weeks ago people weren't willing to have? Yeah, boy, it sure is interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk about the psyche of this, Carmen, I think we spend a lot of our time as human beings tried to trying to avoid death, obviously, in our lives and, and trying to even even the practice and the ritual, which is uh, um a rightly ordered ritual of staying healthy to exercise, to do those sorts of things that we want to have a long lived life. And so a lot of our energy is geared towards that. And historically, you just, you know, in terms of it bleeds, it leads, you know, we sort of get drawn in uh, from time to time to some of the stories that might capture some dimension or reality of death. There, There is sort of this unusual draw to it, but but it's not necessarily part of our everyday life. And we kind of bracket it off. We might live in denial that it's going to happen or slowly come to grips in, in peace. But it happens in trickles in our lives. It happens as we get older. We have to kind of sort of change our thinking and and realize that life is sort of the vapor and the mist that the biblical text talks about. And then to suddenly have it be just in the headlines every single day. And numbers that, are, for me at least, I don't know how it is for you, but they're hard to process. I Once I get to 400 or 4,000 or 40,000, I, I don't even know how to think about these things anymore. And I think what it's done, Carmen, from a psychological standpoint, is it's created a whole ton of fear. And I'm sure you've talked about these things as well, but but it's hard to go out in public 
and almost like not be afraid. It, it feels like something is threatening you everywhere. You, you could become one of those numbers, one of those casualties if you just maybe pick up the wrong item in the grocery store or um, accidentally shake somebody's hand because you forgot about it and they were asymptomatic, but now they've passed it on or anything along those lines. And, and I think the psychology of fear really is uh, becoming palpable all around us all the time. And even just the visual of the of wearing a mask, which is important. And I get it. And I saw that Costco just uh, as of next Monday is going to require all customers to wear masks. But we live in sort of the, the, the visual experience of our frailty all day long. And that really does change things. I think you um, you illuminated a, a couple of really excellent points there. One of one of those is the how lost we get when the numbers get so big. And one of the things that I just want Christians to remember is every single one of those numbers represents a human life, yeah, a human being who is now spending eternity in one reality or the other. And there's there seems to me to be an increased urgency to conversations um, that are not about this temporal life, but about eternity that are maybe easier to broach now because the numbers are so big and the issue of death is is literally right in front of us. So when we come back, can we talk about that? Can we talk about how we wade into those conversations? All right, that conversation up next with Dr. Peter Kapsner, who you can follow on Twitter at Dr. Kapsner. <laughs> we'll be right back. So speak Joining me uh, is Peter Kapsner. He's a professor. He is uh, a teacher of the Bible. He's a small business owner. He's a dad. All kinds of great stuff. Um, <laughs> Peter, we're gonna um, we're we're gonna continue the conversation about death. Um, but I was distracted during our break. Right. Did you did you know that that there there was an online sheep show going on? Over the last several hours, kids from around I, the world competing in an online sheep show, showing their sheep. Okay, I'm mesmerized I, I, by the under eight class of handlers. <laughs> their their sheep are bigger than they are. I know. I'm just telling you, this is the this is the challenge of social media. I just thought that well, I would share is, that with it you. It is, Carmen. And and I mean, you being distractible is unusual to me. First of all, um, <laughs> second of all, uh, that you're you're the farmer. You you've got the land. You've I'm, got the place. It so delights I, my heart. I, I cannot get. I wouldn't know what would make a good sheep. You have to tell me what is the criteria that would that you could judge a sheep by. I have no idea, but I feel like the sheep that I'm looking at on the screen right now, uh, who's bigger than her handler, that is a good sheep because that, that is, is a giant <laughs> animal letting this tiny little person lead it around by a halter. So that feels like a good sheep to me. I have no Great. idea how you judge a sheep. Um, I do know that there is one who is going to judge between the sheep and the goats one day. That's and um, how'd you like that segue? That was so good. Yeah, it's there very go. good. All right. So uh, the, the sheep and the goats are going to be separated one day and the sheep are going to be judged as those who are in Christ. And then there will be those who are not in Christ. And that is the ultimate dividing line. Um, how do we how do we move from a conversation about the fear of of the things that might happen to us between now and death and get people thinking about what is going to happen on the other side of death 
which is eminently more important because eternity is a whole lot longer than however long the breath of this life lasts. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, talking about the gospel and talking about God's beautiful kingdom with people, I I understand for many uh, that it can sort of feel awkward. And you wonder, how do you even broach that conversation? And, And sometimes we're gifted with some uh, pretty easy lead-ins into the conversation. And I think what you and I have been talking about this morning about just this idea of fear and and typically how do we handle fear uh, is that we end up in, some of us deny it and we just sort of bracket it off or some of us try to put a lot of measures in place in our life to control the fear. Uh, fear usually has to do with an unknown future. It usually has to do with variables that you think may harm you, but you can't necessarily figure out how you're going to avoid them. In this particular case, nobody's going to avoid death. And and the question becomes, so if you're talking with a friend, if you're talking with a relative, you could just simply ask the question, what do we do with the fear that we're all experiencing? And that can really prompt some uh, interesting conversations, and especially in the biblical text. And even if you don't try to teach your way through it in a conversation or anything, the question comes up, what does the Bible say is the remedy to fear? What does the Bible say casts out all fear? And it's something that may not be intuitive at first or where we sort of go to when we think about how to cast out fear, but it's pretty clear. It says perfect love casts out fear. And if you have more time to talk about it or think about it with a clear-eyed view of what biblical love is, and you and I have talked about this both on a podcast and on your show before, around the idea that love in God's kingdom is that there is a tender-hearted passion for you that will never leave nor forsake you and will always pursue you for the sake of wholeness, that you will, even in the midst of your absences in life and in death, uh, it will pursue you towards wholeness, meaning that the God who is love uh, is passionate and tender-hearted towards you and will pursue for your wholeness. Now, you can reject that invitation, and of course, that is to your own peril and everlasting peril, uh, should you choose to do so. But the beautiful remedy to fear is not that we suddenly can get a vaccine. It's not that we can suddenly find a therapeutic benefit, though I hope we find those things. The, the only remedy to fear is to put yourself into the arms, into the trust of the one who has your back for all eternity. And when you're in that love, it doesn't mean you're not going to experience horrible circumstances. It does mean that you will be carried through all of them and even at the end of the day, carry through death into new life. And in that place now, peace begins to replace the fear. Uh, it doesn't replace the circumstances, it replaces the fear. And I think that's what we need is, is people of peace, people of hope, people of the, uh, of the book of Acts that you referenced at the top of this hour that somehow are facing death all day long and yet they persisted and they walked into the midst of it. And there, there's an otherworldly power available to do all of that kind of work. We don't talk frequently in our culture about these kinds of things. We don't. Uh, I, absolutely not. I mean, you know, uh, we probably talk fairly frequently, you know, with our kids in our own home uh, about matters of life and death. But it's even hard for me to have this conversation with the generation above me, right? It's yeah. somehow easier to have this conversation with, you know, people of middle age and younger. But as people are getting older, when frankly the conversation is becoming critically more important, um, it's somehow strangely difficult to broach the topic. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I boy, it's hard. You know, and you and I, as I've referenced, we've talked about that. And, and you experienced um, some things of, of people close to you passing pretty early in life. And, and I know you became familiar with death uh, at early ages and, and how that has spurred your life forward. And I think... 
to even just start the conversation uh, and push into the awkwardness so that we can begin to have that kind of familiarity with it. I'm not talking about some weird, morbid view of everything or we just sort of live our lives in the in the face of death all day long. But I'm thinking if you can't simply talk about it, if you can't wonder about the experiences that you've had with one another with death in the past, because I'm sure most of our listeners have had people close to them that they've lost, just start there. Start with developing some sort of language around the topic of death. Uh, it, it's probably like any other topic on some level, Carmen, in that degree, where until you actually break open the box, that box is going to just really inhibit you and you're going to be very afraid of it. And you, you've got to open that up and just start the simple conversations until there's a greater familiarity. So I, I think that's very wise counsel. I think we start with the people who we mutually know who are now with the Lord and we talk about them. And we talk about um, what do you think they're doing right now? Um, yeah. And why Why do you think that? Like, why do you think, you know, dad can either see you or can't see you? Like what, like have that conversation. Um, and, and then, and then this expectation that we're going to be together again. Well, how do you think that's going to be possible? Like if mm. you're not operating out of, um, you know, out of a relationship with God, that's going to, that's going to get you to heaven. What, on what basis do you think you're spending eternity with people who you've loved here if ultimately you don't love the one who, you know, who is the father of all and, and the king of heaven? Like, how how do you think that's going to work itself out and allow people to just sort of practically wander around in that? And then, yes, obviously offer them um, the good news and the way and the truth and the life. But I, I do find that allowing people to kind of muse about uh, their, their often very ill ill-formed and uninformed ideas about heaven, all the misconceptions people have, yeah. is actually yeah. a helpful entry point into, well, why do you think that? Well, what's that based on? Well, well that's not in the Bible. Um, and I actually find that those conversations lead can lead to substantive conversations about how are you actually going to get there? Um, and then you get to talk about Jesus, the way and the truth and the life, and that's where we want all those conversations to go. So... Uh, Peter, yeah. thanks for um, thanks for having this conversation with us today. We got to leave it right there because we got to take a break for Breakpoint. But um, judging uh, sheep, judging, go go to your Twitter feed. I have <laughs> I have tweeted it to you so you can be mesmerized okay. by the sheep. I absolutely I think talk, will be. You know, I think a conversation about judging sheep is a good conversation to have today. I, I think it is too, Carmen. And I have to say, you know, C.S. Lewis, I used to often wonder if the animals were a, lar a lot larger at the beginning or dawn of creation and we mm. sort of crowded out the space. So so maybe, you know, the sheep are making a comeback to sort of the mm. early days, of like day five of Genesis or something. The sheep are making a comeback. Amen. We're going to we're going to end with that. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you next week. Soon. Yep. See ya. We'll be right back. So we have occasion uh, to talk with authors here on the program. We've actually talked with Dr. Michael Heiser on several occasions. We have talked with him about the Bible unfiltered, supernatural, the unseen realm. We've talked with him about uh, angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. Well, today he is going to join us to talk about his latest book, Demons, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. What kind of person does unresolved guilt create? An anxious one. 
forever hiding, running, denying, pretending. As one man admitted, I was always living a lie for fear someone might see me for who I really was and think less of me. I hid behind my super spirituality, but this lie was exhausting and anxiety producing. Unresolved guilt will turn you into a miserable, weary, angry, fretful mess. In a psalm David wrote after his affair with Bathsheba, the king said, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. As Paul told Titus, God's grace is the fertile soil out of which courage sprouts. God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. Salvation is available for everyone. Joining me now, Dr. Michael Heiser, author of many, many books. Today we're going to talk about demons, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. Dr. Heiser, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Yeah, thank you for having me back. So you and I have uh, talked before about the Bible unfiltered. We have talked about the unseen realm. We have talked about angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. Today, we're talking about your latest book, Demons, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. Um, and so we don't just jump into this end of the pool, right? We, we mm-hmm. have this conversation as a part of a progression of conversations. Talk about... Um, the biblical worldview that's necessary to even get into this book. Yeah, I mean, really, if if you're not willing to assign validity <laughs> to to the biblical worldview, you know, the worldview of the biblical writers that they embrace the notion that everything that's real is not, you know, just what's physical, not just what's material. In in, in 21st century language, you know that there is a reality beyond, you know, what we could detect with our senses. If you're not willing to go there, then there's really not much, you know, of a conversation to be had. And, and I would, I would sort of challenge, you know, the listener, especially on your show, you know, if you have trouble with this, you need to consider that, you know, this is an issue of biblical authority. Uh, you know, when it really comes down to it, you know, what, on, on what basis are we going to, you know, dismiss what the biblical writers tell us about the spiritual world, the supernatural world, uh, and then, you know, get rid of that and say, well, I still believe in Jesus. You know, I still believe in the Trinity. I still believe, you know, in the, in the incarnation, but I don't believe in this other stuff because it's just too weird. It's really an inconsistent approach to the whole issue and to Scripture. So thank you for setting it up that way, because the, the question of biblical authority and the question of whether or not I, I trust not only the biblical writers, but I trust Jesus, um, mm-hmm. who had this encounter, right, with, uh, with the devil, encountered yeah, demons, <laughs> yeah, encountered demons in, you know, possessing people, like, right, so there, there are these New Testament examples that I cannot get away from. I, mm-hmm. I certainly recognize the Apostle Paul as... Um, training me up. Uh, let's just point to Ephesians chapter 6 in terms of the threats uh, around and about, um, the devil prowling around looking for a way into my life. Like I, as a New Testament person, right, I see all of that. But there's an Old Testament foundation for all of this, and there are characters and words 
um, that we need to understand. So we get to re- recover this, what you describe as a biblical vocabulary. Walk mm-hmm. us into some of this biblical vocabulary that we need. Yeah, I, I think the <clears throat> the most convenient way to do that is to recognize that what what the Bible describes for us is actually a series of three uh, supernatural rebellions. You know, we have Genesis 3, we've got, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. Everybody sort of knows that one. Then we've got the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 passage, which we have been sort of taught reflexively uh, to reject. You know, the sons of God really can't be supernatural beings there, even though the terminology there is used of supernatural beings everywhere else. You know, there, it's just, it's too strange. I don't understand it. I don't know how that works. So we're, we're taught to sort of dump that one, demythologize it. And then when we get to the third one, which is what happens at, at Babel, initiated with a human rebellion, but then that, you know, digresses into a supernatural rebellion when God assigned the nations, you know, to lesser members of the heavenly host, which we've talked about before. And for listeners who to whom that sounds new, it's Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. Look it up in ESV, for instance, which uses the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's what the text says, you know. So we've, we've got three different groups. They're, they evolve sort of into how they're discussed. You know, Satan, you know, is easy. Angels that sinned in Second Peter goes back to, you know, the Genesis 6 event. And then where Paul gets his principalities and powers, you know, these geographical terms he uses, you know, for powers of darkness, it comes from Deuteronomy 32. And it's also where Daniel's, you know, notion of, you know, princes that are over geopolitical empires, you know, these supernatural princes in Daniel 10. This is where he gets it from Deuteronomy 32, you know, what happened at Babel. So we've got a cast of characters. Not everything is a demon. I mean, the the demons derive from one of those uh, incidents. But, you know, again, we we typically don't even take note of any of this or never have it taught to us because we're, you know, what we get is mediated through the English translation and through church tradition. So in what I'm trying to do in the, in the demons book is get people back to primary sources and really take a look at this stuff. So I'm talking with Dr. Michael Heiser. We're talking about his latest book, Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness. Um, you can find Dr. Heiser at his website, Dr. M S H or Michael S Heiser dot com. Dr. M S H dot com. Um, one of the most important parts of the book actually comes really, really early on. Um, let's talk about what we think we know that may not be so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, there, there, there's a there's a lot of that. Um, you know, just the, the the whole approach of the three, you know, rebellions. I I always get into the subject this way. You know, if you ask the average Christian, hey, why is the world such a mess? Why do we have depravity and supernatural evil and just all this, all you know, all this stuff? You know, why why is it the way it is? The answer you're going to get is, well, that's the fall. You know, Genesis three, the garden. If you ask the same question to a literate Israelite or a you know first century Jew, you know, somebody you know, living in Jesus' day. That's not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons. And, you know, Genesis 3 is the first one. You got these other two. So just out of the gate, <laughs> the, the whole way to approach this is something that sounds quite foreign to us. You know, we, we have other mythologies, you know. Well, what about the third of the angels that, you know, Satan took with him, you know, when he when he fell before, you know, Adam and Eve fell, and then that be, he became evil, then he tempted them. Well, 
that's a that's a Christian myth because there's no verse in the entire Bible that actually says there was such a rebellion with a third of the angels before the you know humanity's fall. You know, we get that from Revelation 12. It's the only place in the Bible where you get the word third, for instance, an angel or demon or anything like that in the same passage. And if you read the passage, it associates the war in heaven there with a third, you know, the stars getting cast down with the birth of the Messiah and his resurrection and ascension. It has nothing to do with some primeval event. So that's a good example of of a thing, an idea that isn't in the biblical text, that, that actually bubbles up to the level of doctrine. Uh, you know, it, it's not that it's going to distract people from the gospel. It's not this, you know, horrible thing that, you know, oh, what, what are we to do now? But it's wrong. <laughs> you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's a thing that we teach that isn't biblical, but we teach it like it's biblical theology. Yeah, I think in much the same way that we think about hell because of what Dante has said, not because of what the Bible says. Yeah. And the horns and the tail business, all that. Mm -hmm. All right. Dr. Michael Heiser and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. When we come back, he's going to tell us about cosmic geography. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Michael Heiser, the book we are talking about today is Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness. I would uh, highly recommend uh, his books prior to this, Supernatural and the Unseen Realm, as well as Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host, in addition to uh, the conversation that we want to have about um, the powers of darkness. So, um, Dr. Heiser, Give us a give us an introduction to cosmic geography. Yeah, cosmic geography is a concept that sort of emerges from what happens at the Babel event. And again, for your your listeners, uh, the quick version of this again is God's judgment on humanity uh, at Babel. Again, we're familiar with the Genesis eleven story. But and I'll confess here, it wasn't until I was a I was a doctoral student that I discovered Deuteronomy thirty two eight and nine, you know, in the original text. Because when you when you're a PhD student in Hebrew Bible, they don't let you read English anymore. You know, so I just had this you know thrust at me, and the notion that God would divide the nations among the sons of God, you know, was kind of shocking. But what what happens with that is is God, you know, judges humanity. He divorces himself from them. And he's going to start over, you know, right after Babel, he calls Abram. And then, you know, we get the story of Israel beginning there. But it creates this sense where the geographical nations that are not Israel are under the dominion, under the authority of something else, you know, some other, you know, supernatural being. And the way the story plays out is, unfortunately, you know, these beings become corrupt, they sow chaos in their nations, they enslave their populations, they turn Israel to idolatry, they, their charges, their people are idolaters, and so on and so forth. And it, you have this sense that Israel is against the nations, the nations against Israel, Yahweh against these other gods, it, it just turns into a, a terrible thing. And for the Israelite, they attached their security, their spiritual security with their geography. And so if you were outside of Israel, you were in a bad place. Either you you perceived it as the domain of death, again, because of these other deities, 
the wilderness especially was a, a you know a realm of death because you, you can't live in the desert you know the desert wilderness is hostile it's it's not compatible with human life and it brings death and there's weird creatures out there so they they developed this sense that if you were outside Yahweh's domain the land of Israel then you were traversing on territory that was spiritually hostile to you. And this explains why certain things happen in biblical events and why certain things are said. There's lots of great illustrations, but Naaman the leper, when he comes from Syria to Israel and is healed of his leprosy, and he he tells you know the prophet, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods, what does he ask for? He asks permission to take dirt back to his home country because he says, I'm never going to sacrifice to another God other than Yahweh. So he, he had, he, there was this sense he had to have dirt with him. He had to have the soil of Israel with him so that he could offer proper sacrifice. You know, the Philistines, when they take the ark into the temple of Dagon, and it's a funny story, <clears throat> you know, how Dagon winds up being a stump, but we miss the part in first Samuel five, where it says to this day, the priests of Dagon refused to walk over the threshold where they found Dagon defeated. Why? Well, why, why would they not walk on it? Because in their, in their sense, that's now under dominion of Yahweh. Yahweh claimed that land. So there are a lot of these things that, that, that go through you know, both Testaments in, in, in certain places where Jesus goes. They have long histories that extend back into the Old Testament where you had cosmic geographical events. So it, it factors in there too, the whole concept of principalities and powers. That these, you know, these these are geographical terms of dominion that Paul uses to identify powers, spiritual powers of darkness. Why does he use geographical dominion terms? Well, you know, it's it's back to this sense of cosmic geography. Okay, so I, I am my mind is is going in a hundred directions right now because what you are describing has implications for. The way we interact as nation states, the way mm-hmm. we think we're going to export our way of thinking or living to another part of the world, um, where, you know, frankly, the, the principalities and powers are different. And that is yeah. not the way the modern world thinks about things. So can no. you talk about, no. the, talk about the cosmic geography in this postmodern world? Yeah, and and again, just to give your listeners the heads up that the way we started this 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 chat this morning mm-hmm. is if if this sounds too strange to you, you know that you don't know how it works and this isn't scientific, it's not modern, and it is and it isn't. Well, you know, neither is the Trinity, neither is the incarnation, neither is the concept of salvation. I mean, nothing we believe in terms of the gospel and and what we believe about God and Christ and all these other things, none of that conforms to a materialistic scientific worldview. So let's just stop with that and be honest. You know, when when we get to to how this sort of plays out, at the very least, Daniel 10 informs us that geopolitical empires in Daniel's case, now they're obviously run by people, kings, okay, and they have bureaucracies. But Daniel wants us to know that, you know, behind all that, Behind the, the human power brokers, there are supernatural intelligences that influence them and steer them. They, do, they, 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 they influence them to do certain things so that they can cont- more easily control the masses. And really, theologically, they can keep them enslaved to certain belief systems and away from a relationship with the true God. I mean, that's ultimately the end game. And Paul, Paul actually linked the work of the Messiah— to reclaim, you know, people from all the nations, 
you know, through Paul. Paul's the apostle to the Gentile, the apostle to the nations, so on and so forth. Paul linked his mission to carry the Great Commission to all these places that are not Israel, to what he called the fullness of the Gentiles, which was an end times and eschatological concept that once God brings these nations back into relationship with him, Israel will be, there'll be an awakening and then the end will come. So if you're a, a supernatural, you know, hostile being, you're thinking the best thing I can do to sort of maintain control is to deflect people away from the gospel, you know, from, from this mission, because God, and we know who that is, and we're not bigger than he is, but we just, we just hate him. He is the one who is going to, you know, decide when this is all over. And this event, this phenomenon, you know, the, the, the furtherance of this gospel about Jesus is linked to that whole scenario. So do we really look at, at how the world operates in a spiritual sense? I mean, there, there really is a spiritual conflict here that, that lurks behind the things that people do to each other and how people hold power over one another. There's something more sinister to it than that. There's an end game to it. I'm going to put my faith and trust in the one who has overcome, right? And I am going to acknowledge um, the greatness of God and his goodness, even as I pay very close attention to what the Bible says about God's enemy and therefore the one who is at enmity with me because I have aligned myself with God. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. right, these are, those are some of the mm-hmm. sort of personal applications. Yeah. yeah, but but personal application conversations to have. And in the meantime, I'm just going to pray Ephesians 6 over myself and over my people, um, you know, so that we'd be, we'd be armored up uh, every single day because spiritual warfare is another thing that you deal with in the book. I think that's a essential conversation for people to have, but you and I don't have time to have that conversation today. But what a feast. Um, Michael, thank you so very much. I want to direct people to your website, drmsh.com. That's how you find Dr. Michael Heiser. The book we've been discussing today is Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Power of Darkness. But please uh, don't start there in terms of feasting upon what Dr. Heiser has written Um, Get yourself established in the Word of God, uh, in the Bible, unfiltered, and then just work your way up. Um, It's a, um, it's it's a it's an entire library of uh, of opportunity with Dr. Heiser. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Absolutely, thank you. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. What are you uh, reading today? What are you praying about? Where are you praying? How are you praying? Let's not uh, forget that the National Day of Prayer is a week away, uh, but we could start today. I am praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who were informed uh, just yesterday that they lost their jobs. I'm, uh, I've been reaching out via email to some of them, just offering prayers and encouragement, looking for ways in my own community to extend generosity to those who find themselves newly in need. I hope you will be doing the same right where you live. Uh, We'll join you right back here tomorrow for more Mornings with Carmen. In the meantime, visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.